Great. Well, if you've got your Bible, we are in Galatians for a few moments. Uh, So turn there, Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read a few verses uh, shortly, and then we're going to go all the way back to the start of the Bible, into Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 3. A long time ago, well, uh, uh, over 100 years ago, 1950, in April 1950, uh, Major John McRae, who was a soldier in the Canadian field artillery, was sent to Belgium. He was stationed in Ypres, so they're very nice in French, the Nile, Belgium, in uh, an area called Flanders. You might know his name, he's become quite famous on the back of a poem that he wrote. He landed in Flanders uh, with a few thousand other comrades from uh, the artillery uh, division. Only two days after arriving, 6,000 of his fellow soldiers had died in combat. And as was custom at that time, in wartime, they quickly buried the dead. They dug graves and placed uh, their comrades into these graves, covered them over with soil. But something interesting began to happen. A few days after these soldiers were buried, these graves began to blossom. Wild flowers sprung up above these dead bodies. And he was inspired to write a poem about Flanders uh, based on what he saw. And what he saw was poppies springing up all over the battlefield. These beautiful, red, vivid, wild flowers. And the poppy became the symbol of remembrance. We'll be wearing it in a few weeks' time in November. The poppy was, was a symbol that was carried a few years after 1915 as a, a yearly memorial to remember the dead. But what Major McRae saw was in the middle of chaos, in the middle of destruction, in the middle of a battlefield which reeked with death. He saw beauty. Beautiful red flowers popping everywhere. Beauty growing in the middle of darkness. That's what he saw. As we start this new series today, folks, looking at the fruit of the Spirit, I want us just to step back a little bit and see the big picture of what is going on. You might be familiar with the list of nine characteristics that the Apostle Paul writes about in Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read now for us just so we get the context Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to read from verse 19 through to 25. I'm not going to read it and then we're going to move away from Galatians 5, right to the start of the Bible, but just so we know where we're going to be for the next seven weeks, let me read this to us. Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, 
Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. These nine characteristics, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Hoping by the end of the seven weeks we know them off by heart. Julie's got a song, haven't you, Julie, that you learned when you were young. Maybe you could come and sing that for us one week. We can all learn them together, but you're probably familiar with them already. If you spent some time in the church, you know what they are. You've heard them taught maybe before. And maybe you've heard them taught as this, this list of godly characteristics that Christians should aspire to. And in some ways, that is what they are. They are the characteristics of a godly person. And they are things that we as Christians should aspire to. But they are also so much more than that. Galatians chapter 5 verse 23, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is God's promised plan for beauty to grow in the middle of darkness. It's like that scene of poppies bursting forth. In a scene of destruction and death and darkness, the fruit of the Spirit is God's promised plan for beauty to grow up, to spring up, to break forth in the midst of destruction and darkness. God has planted his people. God has planted Liberty Church or Redeemer Church. He has planted us where we are to grow with such a beauty that stands out against a dark and chaotic backdrop. That is what living out the fruit of the Spirit will do, folks. When we live out these characteristics, it isn't just a tick list where we say, yeah, I'm good at love, I'm good at joy, I struggle in that area. No, this is God's eternal purpose to bring light into the darkness. Because ultimately, who is that? That's not you, that's not me, that is Jesus. And, and what God wants more than anything else is for his son to be known. It's for the character of his son, the person of his son to be known in our homes, in our marriages, with our children, in our cities, in our workplaces. And how will he be known? Through his people. As they reflect who he is. We're going to hear this phrase over and over over the next few weeks. These are the characteristics of a godly life and God has called us to live them out but not folks so we can be good people so that we would shine like lights against the backdrop of darkness now if you're a Christian here this afternoon that should fill you with hope because I know a lot of us have had rubbish weeks and we probably come in here this afternoon maybe feeling weary, maybe feeling battered, maybe doubting our salvation, maybe thinking, I'm no good. Like, what would God want to do with me? Well, he has given you the most glorious purpose that you can ever think of. To reflect the glorious beauty of his son to those around you. You need to hear, folks, you are not just here to survive. Like we sung it then, we long for the day, right, when Jesus will, will, will welcome us home and we even pray that he would bring us home, but he hasn't yet. We are still here. And you're not just here to ride out the next few decades until he takes you home or until he comes back. You are not just here to survive the struggle and the pain and the grief and the difficulties of this life. God has got something much more profound, much more worthy and much more enduring than just survival. He has planted you here to grow such a beautiful fruit that it will transform the broken and dark places of this city and the broken and dark souls in our city.
So you have worth, folks. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not just sitting and waiting. You have a glorious purpose ahead of you. So over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit. But here's not what we're going to do. Because if you count them, there's nine. And I said, we've got seven weeks. So already you should be thinking, oh, he's not going to go where we think he's going. We're not going to do a week on love, a week on joy, a week on peace, a week on patience. We will spend a few weeks looking at them in in a few groups. But actually what we're going to do is zoom out. We're going to zoom out and look at how the fruit of the Spirit fit into God's grand story. His great story of redemption. Because we could easily just say, oh, well, here's a few things that the, the Apostle Paul writes to and he wants the church in, in Galatia to do these things. If that is all we do, then we miss the big picture. And what I hope we're going to see, particularly over the next three weeks, is how the fruit of the Spirit is a thread that is woven all the way through Scripture. And as we live these things out, we are fulfilling promises that were given to God's people centuries ago. Things that they would have longed for. Fruit of the Spirit, folks, is much bigger than just one verse. It is a central part of God's grand story. So that's all we're doing in Galatians 5 this afternoon. If you could turn with me now right to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. I would love us to read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but we haven't got time. So I'm going to talk us through in a minute, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. We're going to land in Genesis 3, but I want to read all of Genesis 3 to us. Because what we're going to see this afternoon is the big picture, the big context within which us living out the fruit of the Spirit sits. And the context is this, is that there are two kingdoms. A kingdom of light and life and a kingdom of darkness and death. And we see how they come about right at the beginning of the story. So let me read Genesis 3. I'm going to pray again. But as I read it, knowing what we are thinking about, the fruit of the Spirit, as I read Genesis 3, just listen out for clues. Listen for words that that you think, ah, that's interesting. As we look at the fruit of the Spirit, interesting that these things appeared right in the beginning in the garden. So listen out for clues. And as I read, just uh, be attentive. And then I'll pray. And then we'll move on. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, 
I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothing. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let me pray. Well, as we start this journey through... Look at what it is to, uh, to reflect the beauty of who your son is in character and in conduct. Help us to see this afternoon as we just step back and find ourselves in your great story of redemption. Help us to find our place. Help us to see the life that you've called us into with all of the depth, with all of the meaning, with all of the purpose that you intend. And help us, help us to believe that your word is true. Help us to be changed by it. We believe that this is your word, Father, that these words are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that you would change us by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your son. Amen. We haven't got time to do chapters one and two, but I'm going to walk us through how we get to chapter three. Right back in Genesis chapter one, verse one, we see... Really a picture of, of nothingness. The, the universe, the cosmos, it is empty, it is void. And then in the midst of the void, we hear a voice cry out. Let there be light. And there was light. The king of the universe spoke words that were loaded with creative power. These are words that, that formed and shaped And each word that follows through Genesis chapter 1, it goes out as a command and it achieves exactly what God intends. God is like a cosmic architect. We see him separate light from darkness. He places lights in the sky to rule the day and a light in the night to rule the night and to give us seasons. And then he gives another command. The king orders that the waters separate from land. 
And creation responds in immediate perfect obedience. And then he fills the waters with creatures of every size and shape to rule the seas. And then he speaks towards the skies and fills the skies with birds, beautiful and graceful to rule the air. And then the king looks at the land and he spoke another command to fill it with plants, with fruit trees that would bear fruit with seeds to bear more fruit. And the earth responds in obedience and it bursts forth with colour and it fills the land. And then creatures are commanded. The king commands that these creatures are placed into the land to enjoy the fruitfulness of creation. And they respond in perfect obedience. Everything from microscopic worms to to gigantic elephants, they, they inhabit the land, they roam. And God steps back and he looks at what he has created and he says, this is good. It was unblemished. It was in perfect harmony, but it wasn't finished. Every aspect of his creation was given rule in its dominion, but God, the king, wanted to create a ruler created in his image who would rule over all of creation. And so he created man, male and female, created in his perfect image, created as what we call a viceroy. You heard that, that phrase before? Is that a Lord of the Rings thing? Star Wars thing, there we go. There's one for you Star Wars fans. A viceroy is, is a representative of a king. And so God places humanity, he places Adam into his creation as viceroy, as his representative, representative. And the king covenants with his viceroy. He says this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The command was for his viceroy to spread the beauty over all of the earth, not just to keep it in Eden, but the plan was for it to spill out out of Eden all the way across the earth for, for God's beautiful, glorious image to keep spreading and keep multiplying and keep filling. And listen to those words again. Be fruitful. Be fruitful, he says to Adam. Be fruitful. And after he creates Adam and places him in his creation, the king steps back and he says, ah, this is very good. And then he rested. The viceroy to the king was given the name Adam and his wife was given a name Eve and they worked and they rested and they enjoyed the bounty of creation in the presence of the king who would come and visit them and walk with them. Not long into his reign, one day the viceroy notices a creature come into the garden. And this creature was different. We just read in Genesis 3, he wasn't like the other creatures, he was crafty. If someone describes he was crafty, it's not a compliment. He was crafty. He was sly and Adam sees him come in. But instead of doing what he should have done as God's representative, as viceroy, as the one who is ruling and has dominion over creation, instead of chasing him out, he just watches him. And he watches him come alongside his wife, Eve. And the serpent speaks words into the ear of Eve. Words that Adam knew weren't true. The serpent suggests that if Eve, if Adam, if they want equality with the king, 
All they have to do is just disregard that one, that one command that God had given them, the one law, not to touch the tree in the middle of the garden, not to eat of its fruit. He said, surely eating that fruit won't lead to death. In fact, it'll probably have the opposite effect. It'll give you life, freedom, power. And so Eve goes to the tree and she looks at the fruit and it looks good. She looked and she sees that it might make her wise and so she takes it and she bites into its flesh and ate. And she quickly gives it to her husband, Adam, who grasps the fruit and he eats it. And you can imagine as they hear these promises of the serpent, you're going to be like the king. You're going to have his, his, his abilities, his knowledge, his wisdom. All you need to do is just bite down and eat. And you can imagine as they bite and eat and wait. Imagine the eager anticipation of becoming like the king. And yet instead in that moment, what they get is the opposite. For the first time ever, they experience shame. They look at each other and they see, and they notice for the first time that, Adam, you're naked. Eve, you're naked, and they're embarrassed. They're covered in shame, and so they run and hide. They hear the king coming. He's coming on one of his visits, walking through the garden looking for his viceroy. And he calls out, where are you? And there's no answer. Adam and his wife are hiding, but the king finds them. And seeing what they've done, he lays out the verdict that they knew was justly theirs. They had broken the covenant. And so God rightly and justly cursed them. The man was cursed to work the ground, but instead of it giving up a bounty of fruit, it was going to work against him. He'd be fighting against thorns and thistles. The woman was cursed with pain and childbirth. And the serpent was condemned to crawl in the dust of the earth. Now at this point the king had every right to blot them out. To remove them. And to do away with them. But instead he shows mercy. He promises to send another. One who will be faithful. One who would be obedient. One who would crush the head of the serpent. But right now, the viceroy has fallen and he loses his home in the garden. And the kingdom that he ruled over falls into the hands of the serpent. And this serpent, Satan, ruled as a prince of darkness. Like we read in Galatians chapter one at the start, he was a prince of darkness ruling over an evil age because of Adam's rebellion. And every child that came after Adam followed in his footsteps, contended as he contended. Thorns and thistles grew on the ground and thorns and thistles grew in the heart of every one of Adam's offspring. For generations, every generation longed for this promised king. The faithful, obedient king that was coming they longed for him they waited for him but instead this wicked and evil ruler remained on the throne but then he came jesus god in the flesh stepped into the darkness of an evil age to redeem a people for himself 
And as he came, he came to cast out the evil ruler and establish his father's kingdom on earth. It's interesting, you read in the Gospels, just like he did with Adam, the serpent comes alongside Jesus and tempts him. Whispers half-truths into his ear. Tells him that he can promise him kingship just like God. But Jesus resists. He was obedient to his father. Unlike Adam, who so quickly grasped at the fruit in hope of equality with God, instead Jesus, this is what it says in Philippians, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. And because of the obedience of this promised king, the father exalts him to a name that is above every other name, king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus comes like a second Adam, but he is a better Adam. And he comes to complete the work that Adam couldn't complete, to fill all the earth with fruitful image bearers of God. And that is what he is doing. And that is what he continues to do. Through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he is saving every image bearer that puts their faith in him. He is saving them from the judgment of their sin. He is saving them from a kingdom of darkness. He is saving them from spiritual death. And he is bringing them into his kingdom where we have eternal life. Jesus is doing that now. He's doing it all over the world. He is saving his people. But he isn't just saving them, he's filling them. Filling them with his Holy Spirit. King Jesus fills his people with the renewing spirit of God who creates in us his holy fruit. His fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this fruit, remember right at the start in Galatians 5, we, we looked at what it is to, 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 to lust after the, the flesh, to, to chase after the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit are the complete opposite of those things. They are the complete opposite to the fruit of the thistles and thorns that are in the hearts of those who belong to the kingdom of darkness. And so different are they. When we bear this fruit, it shines bright in a backdrop of darkness. If, um, if you've been to our home and you've sat in our front room, you've probably seen our screensaver come on. And uh, a few nods there. It's uh, one of these aerial, aerial views. It changes every few uh, minutes. And it's uh, a drone or something or a satellite that passes over famous monuments or famous places in the world. So it goes over the Great Wall of China or a bit of it. It goes over the city of London. It goes over, um, I don't know, Paris. And it's just a wonderful uh, perspective that you get to see from the sky. One of my favorite videos on that screensaver, I'd be quite happy just to do away with Netflix, by the way, and just watch that screensaver. It's brilliant. One of my favorite ones is when it must be a satellite passes over at night and you just see darkness as it passes over the ocean. Maybe the odd little glimmer of light as it passes over a ship. But then as it approaches a continent, you start to see these flickers and these glimmers of light. And then as it passes over the continent at night, you see, you can make out the shape of the country. There's 
there's the UK there, there's Liverpool there, and there's patches of darkness across the country in the rural parts, but in the cities you see light bursting forth. Folks, as the people of God, when we bear this fruit, it is so distinct, and we're going to see in the next few weeks, to bear the fruit of love as we read it in Galatians 5, or joy or peace, isn't a love like the world knows love. This is a love like Jesus. And you can only love like Jesus if Jesus is in you. So this is a different type of love altogether, a different type of joy. And when we truly bear this fruit, it will burst forth like light as you pass over that continent of darkness. And you just see these glimmers just popping up all over the place. These sparks of light popping up all over the place. And that is what God desires for Liverpool, folks. That is what he desires for liberty as a church. For us to shine like light in the darkness. Not for us to be hidden under a, under a, a, a I've forgotten the word, but under a stand. No, he wants us to burst forth. And it is not our goodness, it is his godness that the world will see. Folks, what our city needs more than anything is not good people. It's not for Liberty Chair to become gooder people. It's for us to become more godly. That is the light that shines so brightly. Because it is so contrary to, to the other way that you can live if you live in the kingdom of darkness. And so simply this afternoon... As we kick off this series, here's what I want us to know. There are two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms in this world. There is a kingdom of darkness that leads to death. And there is a kingdom of God which leads to life. And we should know the kingdom of darkness has been defeated, folks. And its evil ruler, Satan, knows it. But he will still tempt you to stay. And if you've already left and you're part of the kingdom of God, you should know he will invite you to come back and visit Come over, just just come over for a few minutes. He is a liar who hates God and loves death. So resist him. Flee from him. Shine the light of God's truth in his face and turn your back on him. There are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of darkness and then there is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of light which leads to life. And King Jesus is the kindest of all rulers. He loves truth and he loves life. And he offers it to every one of us. And if you are already one of his people, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, then this week, can I encourage you to remember who you are? You are a redeemed image bearer of God filled with his spirit in the midst of a crumbling kingdom of darkness. And we will experience the brokenness of that kingdom every day. Just because we are part of the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean that, that we are free from, from all of the, the effects of the darkness that comes in the kingdom of darkness. We contend against it. We struggle against it. We will continue this week to wrestle against sin. We will suffer with broken bodies and broken minds. We will experience the brokenness of that other kingdom within our marriages, within our workplaces, in our relationships with our children. We will experience that struggle this week. Remember what each of those places, our own lives, our marriages, our workplaces, our children, even our city, what these places need this week is not more of us, it's more of Jesus. Jesus.
So when you find yourself in the battlefield this week, with what looks like destruction and darkness around you, with the stench of death around you, remember who you are. Remember whose you are. And ask his spirit to bear his fruit in you. And as you do, folks, take heart. We are not merely here to survive. God has given you a glorious purpose to bear his glorious fruit and to reflect the character of our glorious King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are our creator, God. Thank you that all that you have created is good. Thank you that you have brought humanity in a world with so much fruit to enjoy, so much common grace to enjoy, but we recognise that there is so much brokenness around us. We contend against it in our own lives, in our own bodies. We see it in the world around us. We thank you, Father, you haven't left us without hope. Thank you that you sent your promised Redeemer, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you've come and you've lived the perfect life that we could never live. Thank you that you didn't, like Adam, grasp at what wasn't there for you to take. But you humbled yourself, taking the form of a servant. Thank you that you suffered and died for us so that we can be brought in the presence of our eternal God. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit we are there now. And we long for the day where we will be with you for all eternity. But we recognise that you have left us here for a purpose. To glorify you by bearing your image and bearing the fruit of godliness in our lives. So help us to find our place in your story. Help us to see which kingdom that we are in. And Father, I pray that if there are those who aren't in your kingdom this afternoon that you would remove the blindness from their eyes, that you would help them to see that remaining in that kingdom is a, is a waiting game that will ultimately lead to death. Draw them to your kingdom and would it please you to use us as a church as you bear this fruit in our lives to draw people towards your son. And help us to be the people that you've called us to be. Help us to live in distinctive ways. We pray for our city. We long for this city to be scattered with light all over it. We pray for our families. We pray for our marriages. We pray for all of the relationships that we are engaged in. We pray that they would be saturated with the light of the glory of the gospel, that you would continue to push back darkness in every area of our life right across this city. And we cannot do that. So we ask that your will will be done. We pray that you would use us as your people. So Father, fill us, we pray, with your spirit. Use us, we ask, not for our glory, but for the glory of your Son. And it's in his name that we pray.